Okay, so as we give out the prizes for the people that answer the questions this morning, first hand up, what book are we going through? Oh, Steve Kemper wins, even though he didn't play by the rules and lift his hand. So you forfeited your prize by not raising your hand, but he did have the right answer. It was Philippians. Um, okay, seriously, we've had two message out of, messages out of Philippians. Can anybody tell me the themes or the main points of these last two messages? For, let's do this. Who's been here for both messages or has heard both messages? Okay, quarter of us maybe. I wasn't here, but I did listen to them. By the way, shameless plug, the podcasts are up every week. I hug Andrew's neck for making that happen. It's a valuable resource that we can all stay on the same page. Um, so check that out. He puts it up on Facebook. And if you don't have a link to it or anything, let us know. We can try and kind of point you in that direction. But first week was uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Anybody remember what Moon talked about there specifically? Was anybody conscious while Moon was speaking? Let me refresh your memory because I think it's important. He talked about specifically Paul placing his faith in God's ability to finish what he started. Chapter 1, verse 6, that God will bring to completion what he has started. And that being the main hope of what God is doing with the Philippians. It's, his faith is not in the Philippians. His faith is not in Paul. His faith is in God to be able to bring the Philippians to the point that God ordained previously. And last week, Hamlet smoked. smoked. <laughs> All right, then. Last week, Hamlet spoke. Uh, anybody remember? Just give me a, a brief main point about what Hamlet said. You're married to the wrong person. That was the main point of the message. <laughs> I'm still trying to explain that to my wife. Uh, she hadn't heard the message, but I told her yeah, I married the wrong person. Hamlet told me so. So, you know, I would really say the main point. Remember, he said it is worth it at the beginning of his message, and he talked about having trials and heartaches, and how near the end of it, he said, "This is God's way of preparing you to minister to somebody else." And sometimes the only way that you can see the true beauty in what God is doing is when you're in the middle of a trial and you start to see that you can minister to somebody else through that. And what jumped out to me was, and this is just my interpretation, it is worth it. So God's going to bring to completion what He started, and it is worth it. And that kind of paints the background to where we're going today, because we have to have those two foundational truths in mind as we jump into where we're going today. Because today is not easy. I'm going to tell you that up front. This is not a message that anybody wants to hear. This is not a message that anybody wants to speak. But... There is joy in it. But we've got to remember that God's going to finish what He started, and it is worth it. Okay? If you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to go through verses 12 through 18 today. Love the book of Philippians. Again, just as a public service announcement too, it would be a fantastic idea for you to be studying the book of Philippians as we go through the book of Philippians. Um Maybe go through and try to outline the paragraphs, try to figure out what the main thoughts are. And we can do that together. I love the corporateness of Bible study. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. God speaks through His Word, and He may say something to you that somebody else might have missed. Put that on Facebook. Say, man, as I was studying Philippians today, I saw this. Church, I'd want you to know it. 
And what we're up here to do is kind of direct your path as you're studying and say these are some main points to think about. This is something to meditate about. So be engaged with the book as we go through it. And this is a fantastic book to go through together. Let me pray, then we'll read this passage. God, we rely completely on You to do what only You can do, God, to open the eyes of our hearts, to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might see, so that we might hear, so that we might receive, so that we might live the way that You've called us to, God. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit who is our teacher. We have no hope of comprehending any of this without His help, but with Him, through Him, by Him, there are riches in what we're about to read. And it's not my words, God. It's your words. Help us to understand. Thank you for the teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Thanksgiving morning, 2009. Matt Chandler wakes up like every other day and does what he normally does. His life is great. He's the lead pastor of one of the fastest-growing churches in America, the Village Church near Dallas, Texas. He has a wife and three kids. He has a cup of coffee, feeds his baby daughter, burps her, changes her diaper, and puts her down. Then he wakes up in the hospital. What Chandler does not remember is that he suffered a seizure and collapsed in front of the fireplace, rattling the pokers. He does not remember biting through his tongue. He does not remember his wife, Lauren, shielding the kids as he shook on the floor, or later ripping the IV out of his arm and punching a medic in the face. During the ambulance ride, Lauren, 29, looks back from the passenger seat at her husband in restraints. He's looking at her, but through her. She texts the women in her Bible study and asks them to pray. At the hospital, Matt comes too. Honey, what happened, he says. She said, you had a seizure. He realizes that their two older children, Audrey, who's seven at the time, and Reed, who's four, had seen it. He asks, are the kids okay? Tears well up in his eyes. She says, they're fine. They're fine. Chandler, however, was not fine. He has a brain tumor. A bad one. Tumors are designated by grade from one to four, with one being the least aggressive and four being the most aggressive. His is a grade three. Normal life expectancy in such cases is two to three years. He has aggressive surgery just a few weeks after the diagnosis, and the doctor gets out what he can. Chandler would later say that learning about this and going through this was kind of like getting punched in the gut. You take the shot, you try not to vomit, then you get back to doing what you do, believing what you believe. And what did he believe? I quote him, Lord, you gave me this for a reason. Let me run with it and do the best I can with it. Now, we'll finish Matt's story at the end of the message, but for the meat of the message, we'll turn back to the Apostle Paul and get the biblical perspective of suffering and the glory of the gospel of Christ. Let's reread our passage. I think it's important to ingrain it in our our mind. 
Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, with what we just talked about in mind. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Now from this passage, we're going to look at two points. The first one is the gospel changes how you look at your troublemakers. And the second is the gospel changes how you look at your trials. In these two points, we'll give a view. We'll get a view from God's perspective as to how our enemies are used to glorify Him. Let me reread that. We'll get a view from God's perspective as to how our enemies are used to glorify Him and how He uses even our worst circumstances for our good. And I think maybe the music that we sang this morning will kind of tie in with this too, kind of bring it full circle, I hope. So let's get a little background as to where we've been so far in the book of Philippians. We talked about the two messages that we've already heard. Up to this point, Paul had introduced himself as a slave to the Philippians. He had extended grace and peace to them, and he had talked about his love for them. Hamlet mentioned last week about how he just loved these people, and that's what that passage last week talked about a lot, how much he loved them. And he encouraged them to grow in their love for each other. And the thought pattern could be something like this when you bring all this together. I am your slave. I want the best for you. I love you and want you to know the joy of loving each other in the same way that I love you. So, so far so good, right? But then he starts to explain that part of the reason he is writing to them is to let them know how he is doing. Obviously they had heard something had happened to him and what was it? Look at verses 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So let me ask you a question. Where is Paul when he's writing this? What? In prison. Now, now get a hold of that. Anybody ever been in prison? Never mind, don't raise your hand if you've been in prison. You may not want people to know that. I don't think prison would be a good place to be. Just my hunch. I don't think anybody wants to... Well, I don't think most people want to be in prison. So Paul's in prison. And I learned... What's the difference between jail and prison? Anybody know? I know. I know the answer to this. If you're in... If you're retained more than 24 hours, you go to prison. If it's 24 hours or less, you go to jail. Write that down. Put that in your notes. That's free right there. I won't charge you a penny for that information. Okay. So Paul is in jail. And a look back at the end of Acts kind of tells us how he got there. He had endured a long, torturous trip to Rome to be imprisoned after he had appealed to Caesar in his trial against the Jewish leaders who had accused him of heresy and treason. After a whirlwind tour of southeastern Europe and western Asia, starting churches, preaching the gospel, and becoming probably the most renowned teacher and preacher in the young movement of Christianity, Paul is railroaded and dead-ended into Roman house arrest. He has his own dwelling and has freedom to have visitors and people to come and attend to him, but he's always chained to a Roman soldier. 
not just to something immovable, he's chained to a soldier, whose job it is to oversee and supervise him every minute of every day. No privacy, no escape. Just chains that bind him to his revolving door of Roman soldiers. And history tells us that he's held in custody like this for at least two years. The fiery, hyperactive apostle is now grounded, held captive by the giant that is the Roman Empire. He belongs to them now. Or does he? The Philippians fear for him and his message. What now, Paul? What will you do? What should we do? Paul's advice to them and to us is the key to how we address our enemies and our situations. Let's start with seeing how we should view our enemies. The gospel changes how we look at our troublemakers is our first point. We're going to look at verses 14 and 18 first. Let's read 14 through 18. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Say it with me. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now, what's going on here? It seems that when Paul was imprisoned, it had a strange effect on people's willingness to preach the gospel. You would think that people would be scared, right? But actually, instead of scaring people into not preaching the gospel, Paul says that people were actually emboldened to preach after his jailing. Now, why would that be? There's two camps that are preaching and two different reasons why they are preaching and why they're emboldened. The first camp is made up of believers and brothers of Paul who out of love, he says in verse 16, want to carry on Paul's work since he has been incarcerated. Seems good. But what about the other camp? Who are they? Look at the combination in verses 15 and 17. Verse 15 says that this camp preaches Christ from envy and rivalry. And verse 17 says they do it out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. Now think about this. These guys we would call not so nice, in my opinion. The mindset seems to go something like this. Did you hear that Paul's in jail? Yeah, I heard that. Now is our chance to cash in on all these churches he started. These folks share all that they have from Acts 2. Remember that? Maybe if we come and preach and teach what Paul taught, they'll share with us. This is a golden opportunity. This could make us rich. And in the process, we could really stick it to Paul. He said we were false teachers. He said we taught a false gospel. We'll stick it to him for that, and we'll get rich in the process. That's what these people were thinking. And how does Paul feel about all of this? Maybe not the way that I would feel about it. Maybe not the way that I think he should think about it. Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Now what an odd reaction. Seems a little odd, doesn't it? But Paul's focus is on the gospel, not on his enemies. Paul looks and sees the gospel being preached, preached in pretense and out of greed, yes, but preached nonetheless, and in this he rejoices. He'll rejoice when his brothers and friends preach the gospel, and he'll rejoice when his adversaries preach the gospel. Why? Because his focus is on the gospel. 
His ear is tuned to hearing the news about the gospel. The reports tell him his enemies are trying to cause him trouble by preaching the gospel. And what he hears is, the gospel's being preached. And he rejoices. Paul knows, now check this out. This is one of the things that impacted me the most in studying this passage. Paul knows that God will sort things out and make them right in the end. But right now, he is intensely concerned with getting the good news out. And here's the statement that really impacts me. He trusts the power of the gospel more than he trusts in man's ability to mess it up. That's gospel-centered perspective. And it affected how Paul saw his troublemakers. He said, you preach the gospel, you can have all the wrong motives and all the wrong ambitions you want. As long as you're preaching the gospel, I will rejoice in that. Seems upside down to me, but this thing called the Christian life is upside down most of the time. So, the gospel changes how we look at our troublemakers. That's the first point. The second point is the gospel changes how we look at our trials. And here's where it gets real for us, okay? Look back at verses 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You hear that over and over, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul was in the midst of a terrible trial. He was in jail. And he has every reason to despair. He was responsible for the establishment and edification of churches across most of the world as they knew it. He had no time to be shackled to a smelly Roman guard. He had work to do. He had places to go. He had people to see. But his reaction is not one of despair. Instead, he looks incredulously around him and he says, I'm separated from all these churches I've planted. I'm in jail. People are preaching despite me. And can you believe it? I'm full of joy and Jesus is exalted. That's his reaction. His joy was in the glory of the gospel. He was jailed, but it was unchained. How did he know it was unchained? Look at the verses again, 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He says that his imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. How? While he's been in jail, he's been preaching there. Verse 13 gives us a glimpse into this. He says that the whole imperial guard and, quote, all the rest now know what his imprisonment is all about and that it's for Christ. Now, picture this, okay? Get this picture. Anybody good at imagining things? Can you imagine anything? Picture this. Paul's chained to a Roman guard and they start to have a conversation. The soldier really didn't stand a chance because Paul's ready to go. You know what I'm saying? Paul's locked and loaded, just like we should be all the time. This guy's going to hear the gospel. I can just just imagine it. So what are you in here for, prisoner? Christ. What's that mean? Well, since you asked, boom! And Paul bolts through the door that was wide open for him. What are you in for? I'm in for Christ. Well, what's that mean? It means this. And what do you think Paul did? Paul preached the gospel. I can imagine that after a short while, the guards started having conversations like this. Dude, I've got Paul detail tonight. Eight hours chained to that kook. All he ever talks about is Jesus. And they're all going, yeah, I know. 
Dude, that's all I ever hear from him. But after a little while longer, it turns into, Hey, Paul, I was thinking about what you were saying the other night. Me and the boys were talking. Now, did Jesus really come back from the dead? And then into, Okay, Paul, so if he came back from the dead and he's who you say you are, then, Paul, what have I got to do to have what you've got? Paul, what have I got to do to be saved? Till pretty soon the guards and all the rest, quote, knew who Paul was, knew what he was in jail for, and ultimately knew his entire message. And I'd say they knew it by heart after being chained to him for that long. And what was his message? His message was the gospel. Paul said at one point, I do all things for the sake of what? For the sake of the gospel. Note again who he said had this knowledge, the whole imperial guard and all the rest. Now that's a lot of people, obviously. And some of them had access into the very court of Caesar himself. The gospel was being sown in the hearts of common soldiers and in the halls of the decision makers of the day. So naturally, or actually supernaturally, Paul was ecstatic. He had appealed to Caesar, and now Caesar was hearing the gospel. And Paul was overjoyed. Now, it would have been easy for him to look at the chains around him and fall into despair. He could have looked at a situation and felt sorry for himself, which is our tendency, I believe, sometimes. But Paul was not that kind of person. His joy was in the glory of God shown in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this glory, this gospel was flourishing, so he was rejoicing. He's seeing the gospel grow and blossom and get into the halls of decision makers. He's like, I can't believe this. Now, let me just take a minute as a side note, but really something that's important in here too. I want to revel in the sovereignty of God in what seems like a bad situation for Paul. And this kind of ties in with what Hamlet spoke last week when he said, your bad situation may be the way that God reaches somebody else. Remember, uh, I guess it was back in April when I spoke here for the first time. Uh, anybody was here talking about Paul's journey to Philippi? Anybody remember that? Remember that sovereignly, or some would say coincidentally, they went to Troas, and what happened at Troas? He met a guy named Luke. Okay, He wanted to go north, and God said no. He wanted to go east, and God said no. So they went west, and they ended up in Troas. Paul meets a man named Luke. Luke writes two books of our New Testament, which actually make up over a quarter of our New Testament. So God had a plan in taking Paul to Troas. Now, in the same way, we find Paul in jail and wonder what else God is up to besides what Paul mentions about his troublemakers and his trials. Paul was not only preaching to his immediate peers. During his two-year imprisonment, he was actively discipling the churches that he had established through doing what? He was writing some letters, wasn't he? And as God would have it, some of these letters found their way to us through divine guidance. Listen. This letter that we're looking at, which is Philippians, along with the letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, and the letter to Philemon, all end up being recognized as divinely inspired and canonized in our Bibles. God wanted you to hear something, so He puts Paul in jail for two years so that you could hear. Paul's bad situation turned into something beautiful for somebody else, didn't it? Including us. That's sovereignty, guys. And we don't have that perspective most of the time when we're in the midst of our trials. But Paul's showing us that we can have that perspective. God had a lot of plans for Paul and the church of Jesus Christ that were realized during these bleak-looking circumstances in Paul's life. 
So we've seen that Paul viewed his troublemakers and his trials through the lens of the progress and glory of the gospel. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds like Paul at his finest. Sounds like God doing something fantastic in the life of his apostle. Good job, God. Good job, Paul. But what about me? What about my trial? What about my hard situation? Now let's take some time, and this is where we're going to get into application to apply this to our lives, both individually and corporately. Anybody familiar with the Peanuts comic strips? Charlie Brown, Snoopy. I love Peanuts. What does Lucy think about Charlie Brown? You know, because him blockhead all the time, which doesn't make any sense to me because his head is really round. I've never seen a round block. In one comic strip, Lucy said to Charlie Brown, now get a hold of this, you ready? Sometimes I feel we're not communicating. You, Charlie Brown, are a foul ball in the line drive of life. In the line drive of life. You're often in the shadow of your own goalpost. You're a miscue. You're three putts on the 18th green. You're a 7-10 split in the 10th frame. You have dropped a rod and reel in the lake of life. You've missed a free throw. You shacked a nine iron. You called third, you're a called third strike, a bug on the windshield of life. Do you understand? Have I made myself clear, blockhead? Now there are times, guys, and some of you are there right now. There's times when it seems like the situations and circumstances of our lives are saying these types of things about us. We feel like we're the ones behind the eight ball. Anybody ever been there? Anybody feel like you're there right now? We feel like things really couldn't get any worse. And from the perspective that we're looking from, we might be right. But Paul's example in writing to the Philippians helps us to change our perspective. And that's really what we're after this morning. His situation was bad, but he was rejoicing in it. And it wasn't some fake, phony, well, just praise the Lord that I'm in jail this morning. Sometimes we put on a pious, churchy face and praise God through our situation, but we don't really mean it. That's not what Paul's doing. It's not what he's doing at all. Paul's example in his bad situation leads us to see that later he speaks of hopefully seeing the Philippians again, but that was not what he was finding joy in. He was finding joy in the growth and glory of the gospel in his situation. He's seeing this situation through God's eyes and finding out what God wants and that God wants the gospel to be proclaimed by Paul. Listen, where Paul is in his present setting... Yes, in jail. Yes, while hucksters are preaching the gospel to pad their pockets. Paul sees God in control of all this and knows that he is commissioned to work with God where he is and as he is. And he sees great success in all of this. How? By being faithful to preach the gospel. Now, I want you to look at your present life situation. Guys, I'm I'm on a mountaintop right now. And we've been in the valley. I've been in the valley, but right now I'm on a mountaintop. I got a new baby, job steady, beautiful wife, four beautiful kids. I was on vacation this week. I've had two cups of coffee this morning and a cup of green tea. So I really feel like I'm kind of floating up here anyway. Some of you aren't on the mountaintop. Some of you are in the middle of the fire. Some of you are in a dark valley. And let me tell you something, that dark valley is real. I am in no way asking you to look around and say, well, I'm not in a dark valley. 
I'm asking you in the midst of the valley to look around and start doing what Paul was doing. Start preaching the gospel. Are you preaching the gospel in the midst of your situation or are you preoccupied with asking God to get you out of that situation so that you don't have to put up with it anymore? Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting out of a bad situation. Nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with not preaching the gospel while you wait for your deliverance. What if Paul had just went idle while waiting for God to deliver him? What if he just hunkered down in that cell and just started praying, God, get me out of this. God, help me. God, this is not what I think you want me to do. God, please, me, me, me. God, focus on me because I'm focused on me. God, me, me, me. The imperial guard and all the rest wouldn't have heard the gospel. We wouldn't have had at least four books of our New Testament. And I can guarantee you that Paul would not have been rejoicing in his circumstances. He'd have been miserable for two years. God, when are you going to get me out of here? God, when are you going to help me? That would have been Paul's constant refrain. And sadly, it is often mine. God, get me out of this. God, please, this is too hard. And guys, please, again, don't hear me saying it's not hard. It is hard. But when you focus on yourself, it makes it harder. Right now, some of you are in the midst of some bad circumstances. Work situations tearing you apart, marriages broken or badly bent, money not coming in, health issues, doubt, fear, anxiety, and these are all very real and very damaging to our well-being. But I have a recipe for joy in the midst of all of these and any other bad situation. And the recipe is one step. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself and to those all around you, no matter where you are. Focus on the power of God where you are right now. Focus on how God can change you and those around you by the power of the gospel. In your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to look at a few scriptures and we'll be done to see how this applies to our lives. Romans chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 17. Romans 1, starting in verse 13. I do not want you to be... Now, this is Paul, again, writing to the Romans this time, not the Philippians. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Paul says here to the Romans that he's under obligation both to Greeks, barbarians, wise, and foolish. Now, what is he obliged to give them? Come on. The gospel. He owes them the gospel. Get a hold of that. And why does he owe it to them? Because it's the power of God for salvation. This is a call to preach the gospel to everyone all the time for their salvation and for yours. Look at every situation as an opportunity to preach the gospel to someone you may not have had the opportunity to preach to before. Are you at the DMV? You're going to be there a while. You might as well preach the gospel. Divorce court? Work? 
hospital, elevator, getting tires. You owe the people in these places the gospel. You owe it to them. You are obliged to them to share it with them. The gospel is God's power for salvation. And salvation to who in the passage? To unbelievers? Not in this passage. In this passage, he says, it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Salvation is so much more than just being born again. That's the first step. But God is constantly saving us. In the midst of your situation, you know what has the power to save you in your situation? The gospel has the power to save you once you've been born again. And it keeps on saving you. And it keeps on saving you. When you're at the DMV and those ugly words come into your mind, the gospel has the power to save you from that. Do you want salvation in your current situation? Not from your situation, but in it. If you want salvation, then preach the gospel. The gospel is God's power for salvation and salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel saves believers in the midst of their circumstances. You will never know salvation in your circumstance apart from the gospel. If we're in the throes of a bad situation, we get off track when we start to look at ourselves and our circumstances. Think about Peter when he said, I want to come out and walk on the water with you. I think it's an overused illustration, but it's it's perfect. You can't get any more perfect. Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come out on the waves. Jesus said, come on. And as long as he did what? As long as he looked at Jesus, Peter's walking on the water. But what happened? It said that he started to see the wind and the waves around him, and then what happened? He started to sink. And then what did he do? He called out for salvation. Lord, save me. Jesus reaches, grabs them. They're in the boat. Christian, you want to be in the boat? Look to Jesus. Preach the gospel. Peter lost his focus pretty quickly, and we do the same thing when we don't, when things don't go the way that we think they should go. And let me tell you guys, this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible is very honest and real in showing us that things probably won't go the way that we think they should. I woke up in December, and I realized that I was 39 years old, and my life was in no way, shape, or form what I thought it would be when I was 39 years old. Anybody ever had that realization? You younger folk, you haven't had that yet. It's coming. It's coming. Wait for it. You're like, oh boy. Oh. I've got half of this thing whipped, at least. Maybe three quarters of it. Who knows? And I'm not where I thought I would be. You're going to have that moment more than likely. Because things don't always go the way that they think they should, well, the way that we think they should, and the Bible's very honest about this. John sixteen thirty three. You don't have to turn there. Jesus says this: "I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." Jesus did not say you might have tribulation. Jesus did not say you might wake up when you're thirty nine and say, "What in the world have I been doing for thirty nine years?" He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3.12. Don't turn there. Write it down if you want to. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be. Not might wake up and find themselves in a mess. You will be persecuted if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. It will happen. 
Familiar passage, James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James, in my mind, kind of ups the ante. He don't just say you're going to have trouble. He says count it all joy when you do have trouble. Now, I'm not there, guys. In the midst of my trouble, I'm not like, God, high five. Yes. I love trials. This is fantastic, God. But that's what James is saying to do. Count it all joy, knowing that God is shaping you, fashioning you, molding you, and conforming you to the image of His Son, who we call the suffering servant. And really, what's our highest goal? It's to be like Christ. And if you want to be like Christ, you will suffer. Peter knew a little bit about suffering. 1 Peter 1, verses 3-9. through 9. Let me read that to you. You don't have to turn there. This is the last one that I'll read. No, no, I'm sorry. It's close to the last one. We're almost done. Listen to what Peter says. <clears throat> now listen, in view of trials and knowing that they're coming. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Have been saved, are being saved, will be saved. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter didn't just slide in the medicine with a little bit of sugar there. He just said, you're suffering, and now I want you to rejoice in that. Because what you're going through is more precious than gold. These passages scream two things to us. First, you are going to suffer if you are a Christian. You're going to. There's no way around it. If you are God's, you will be salted with fire. You will suffer. But how will you suffer? That's the second thing these passages tell us. You're going to suffer. The second is, listen, listen. You can suffer with joy. The James passage says we should count trials as joys because they're making us better. And the first Peter passage goes even further and says that our trials lead us to praising, glorifying, and honoring Christ. Now again, it's a perspective thing. If Christ can get glory in your bad situation, it becomes an opportunity to joyously worship Him in and through it. But our focus has to be on the gospel. Not ourselves, not our situation, it's the gospel. God, how will you use the gospel in this situation? The gospel alone has the power to save us, the power to save those around us, even our enemies, and the power to bring God glory through it all. A life fixed on the gospel is an indestructible, undefeatable life. Paul modeled and preached this kind of life, and we see it so clearly in our passage from Philippians. Now, 
So again, that sounds great. That sounds fantastic. But you don't know how I wake up every morning. You don't know the ache in my gut. You don't know the fear and the anxiety that's pounding me when I wake up in the morning. Maybe I don't. But I want to give you a couple of daggers. I want to give you a couple of weapons to use to fight that anxiety, to fight that fear, to fight that dread, to fight in the midst of that bad situation. And what's the best way that we fight these things? We fight it with Scripture. We fight it with truth. We fight it with the Gospel. The first passage is Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Write that down if you're taking notes. And it'd be fantastic to memorize. It'd be fantastic to use. Again, the Word of God is living and active and sharp. That's not the verse. I'm just, it's, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we got these little daggers that we pull out. When anxiety comes, when fear comes, we pull it out and we stab it. We fight it with these truths. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured for sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, in your bad situation, in your trial, in the fire, look to Jesus. Here we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus. Who did what He did for what reason? For the joy set before Him endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross and endured it for the joy of doing the will of God. Three times in the garden he asked, If there's a way, God, take this cup away from me, but not my will but yours be done. And I think that serves as a perfect model for how we treat trials and hard times. God, if you would, please take this away, but not my will but yours be done. Fixing my eyes on Jesus so that I don't lose heart. Jesus knew that the outcome would be glory for his Father, so he was joyfully obedient through the trial. The second passage is familiar, but it fits too well not to look at it. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. Write that down too. Paul says this to the Romans. Now listen, you've heard this a blue million times. And it could be so trite, it could be so cliche, but think about what we're talking about. Think about where you are right now and put yourself in the context of this passage. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now go back to the first two messages. Paul's faith was in the... Uh, was placed in the fact that God started something and God would finish it. Hamlet said last week, it is worth it. Why is it worth it? Why do we know that God's going to finish what He started? Because of what we just read in Romans 8, 28-30. It's not just pious religious talk to say what these verses say. No matter what you may be going through right now or in the future, if you are God's, He is using it for your good. And your good will lead to glory for Him and for you, ultimately. 
Tuck these passages away in your heart and use them to fight for joy in the midst of your trials and your pain. Now, remember Matt Chandler at the beginning of the message? How did he do as far as glorifying God in his cancer? Monday, January 4th, a month after surgery. Morning breaks with four-year-old Reed singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star at full volume. Matt sits at his laptop in the dining room nursing a cup of green tea. He's preparing to drive to a homeopathic clinic for an infusion of vitamin C to bolster his immune system, followed by a long drive to downtown Dallas for radiation. He's in the midst of a six-week program of radiation and chemotherapy to be followed by a break and more treatment. Now, this is a few years back. Chandler never thought such a trial would shake his faith, but until now, that was just hope in the abstract. And this is what he says. This has not surprised God. He is not in a panic right now trying to figure out what to do with me or this disease. Those things have been warm blankets, man. Chandler has, however, wrestled with the tension between belief and an all-powerful God and what he as a mere mortal can do about his situation. He believes he has responsibilities to use his brain, to take advantage of technology, to walk in faith and hope, to pray for healing, and then, quote, see what God wants to do. And he says later, knowing that if God is outside time and I am inside time, that puts some severe limitations on my ability to crack all the codes. The more I've studied, he says, the more I go, yes, God is sovereign and he does ask us to pray and he does change his mind. How all that will work is in some aspects a mystery. And it is. We'll live in that tension forever. God, you're sovereign, but you ask me to pray. You're in control of this, but you're asking me to do certain things. And the one thing that he would ask us to do is focus on the gospel, which is what Matt Chandler does. Listen to this. Since falling ill, now this is a man who had a number three brain tumor mostly removed from his head. Listen to what he does. If I can find it, I'm sorry. Since falling ill, Chandler has gotten letters from the governor and pastors in Sudan. He's tried to steer attention to others, including a six-year-old Arizona girl with cancer. At church, he has deflected sympathy with reassurance that this is a good thing, that he's not shrinking back. Chandler has preached the last two weekends, and while he's in chemotherapy and radiation, by the way, and is planning trips to South Africa and England. He lo- recently lost his hair to radiation, but got a positive lab report last week and feels strong. Mark Driscoll says this, The human experience commonly shared is suffering. If he suffers well, that might be the most important sermon that Matt Chandler has ever preached. That's what Mark Driscoll said. Chandler would rather this not have happened, but he is drinking life in, watching his son build sandcastles at the park, preaching each sermon as if eternity is at stake, and feeling a heightened sense of reality. Chandler says it's carpe diem on steroids. At the dinner table, on the sixth day of radiation, the new normal looks like this. Reed in Spider-Man pajamas. Peanut butter and jelly dipped in honey for the kids, turkey chili for the adults, and peppermint ice cream. It's a diaper changed and dishes done. Matt Chandler takes his chemo pills and goes to bed, grateful for another day. Now, the article describing all that was written January 31, 2010. Matt Chandler has since that time been declared cancer-free. Praise God for that. That may not always be the case, though. 
He's preaching, teaching, writing, and speaking like a man on a mission. And he is as full of joy now as he was when he was in the middle of his battle with cancer. Why? Because his focus is on the gospel. Just like Paul's was. This is not about looking for light at the end of the tunnel. It's the fellowship with God in the midst of the fiery furnace. It's joy in the suffering. Joy in the face of fakes preaching the gospel. Joy in the prison chained to the guard. Joy in knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for you. Here. Now. And yes, I will rejoice. Let's pray. God, we do have perspective issues. I am quick to turn my perspective onto my trials instead of out of them. I am quick to turn my eyes away from Jesus and onto myself. And sometimes I mask it, God, in concern for other people. Well, if this happened to me, then what would happen to my family? And that creates so much anxiety, God. Father, right now, in the midst of our situations, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of the fiery furnace, would you turn our eyes onto Jesus? And would you make us a gospel-centered people? And may we start right now in the fire preaching the gospel to ourselves and to all those around us. And God, we are inadequate. Paul would say in one of his letters, who is adequate for these things? And we are not in and of ourselves, God. But through you, in you, by you, we really can do all things. We can even suffer well. We can even rejoice in the midst of the jail, in the midst of the trial, if we will focus our hearts and our lives on the person of Christ and on the truth of the gospel. When the chains surround our hands and our hearts, God, may we lift up our voice and preach the gospel. And may we rejoice in our situation knowing that the gospel is your power and the salvation for everyone who believes. God, for those who are suffering and struggling right now, speak to their hearts, comforter. Holy Spirit, would you move in a powerful way to bring their attention and their focus back to you. And may they be proclaimers and claimers of the truth of your gospel. We need your help and we ask for it now. In Jesus' name, amen.